What happens when a dual citizen athlete has to make a choice about which country they will represent at the Olympics? This story is from Chuki Ibe, who explores the balancing act between allegiance and national loyalty that athletes must consider before competing on the world stage. When Tokyo first hosted the Olympics in 1964, the honor of lighting the Olympic cauldron went to Sakai Yoshinori, a 19-year-old athlete born in Hiroshima the same day the atomic bomb fell. This time, a young woman with Japanese red braided into her curly hair receives the Olympic flame and climbs towards the cauldron. Born to a Haitian father and Japanese mother in Japan, Naomi began representing Japan at the age of 14. At 22, she had to revoke her American citizenship to comply with Japanese nationality laws. She lights the cauldron, a symbol of the unifying nature of sports. The parade commences, and as per tradition, Greece, the birthplace of the Olympics, leads the procession of 205 nations. Flag bearers gates with pride, the stadium explodes with colors of all the world's nations. But it wasn't until the 1908 Olympics that athletes began representing countries. Behind Greece, a team without a country carries the Olympic flag. It comprises athletes who are displaced after fleeing their nation's borders. Any team after them appears in alphabetical order but of the host country, so of course, Yemen appears before Great Britain and then behind Andorra. The Tigresses bounce behind Nigeria's flag bearer Odunayo Adekoroye. Miranda Ayim, basketball superstar, grips the Canadian maple flag alongside rugby sevens player Nathan Hirayama. If Canada meets Nigeria in the women's basketball finals, whose team will I be on? <laughs> For an event that evokes so much national pride, athletes compete against their own countries more than you would think. In the year 2000, Qatar's government bought two Kenyan long-distance runners and an entire Bulgarian weightlifting team. In 2012, half of Azerbaijan's Olympic team and 60 members of Great Britain's team were foreign-born. And the Americans, well, they're known for importing athletes with, quote, extraordinary abilities, end quote, through notorious sport visa programs. And Naomi Osaka, the final bearer of the Olympic flame, is a prime example of how impossible it is to truly belong. She had to choose between Japan, America, and Haiti. It's like being forced to choose between your mother and your grandmother. But this is not just about the athletes and their choices. It's about us and how we answer this impossible question. Where are you really from? On this episode of Arena, we explore what it means to love a country that does not always love you back. Good afternoon, bonjour. It's a great honor to speak to you today. My name is Afonso Davies. My parents are from Liberia and fled the Civil War. I was born in Ghana in a refugee camp. It was a hard life. But when I was five years old, a country called Canada welcomed us in. 
and the boys on the football team made me feel at home. Today, I am 17 years old, and I play for the men's national team, and I'm a proud Canadian citizen. And my dream is to someday compete in the World Cup, maybe even in my hometown of Edmonton. I played matches in Canada, Mexico, and the United States. The people in North America have always welcomed me. If given the opportunity, I know they'll welcome you. Thank you. Born to a Liberian family seeking refuge in Ghana, a young Alfonso and his family migrated to Canada as refugees. As a result, he's eligible to play for the Liberian Lone Stars, the Ghanaian Black Stars, and Team Canada. The day after Alfonso became a Canadian citizen, he declared for the Canadian national team. Alfonso was a leading voice in the joint bid by Mexico, Canada, and the United States to bring the World Cup to North America in 2026. Alfonso and his team succeeded. He now plays his club football for German giants FC Bayern Munich and represents Team Canada's national team. He now plays his club football for German giants FC Bayern Munich and represents Team Canada at the national level. If you had to choose between your country of residence, country of birth, your country of ancestry, what team would you choose? Okay, my name is Gijsbert Oonk. I'm a professor of migration, citizenship and identity at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. FIFA and the International Olympic Com Committees have, th th those are the two major global institutions that have their own regulations on eligibility. Um, the, uh, the International Olympic Committee is actually, I think, the most straightforward. Um, they say we are not interfering with nationality rules and regulations. We are not interfering with countries. So if country A, say Canada or the Netherlands, um, uh, allow um, you or me to be at citizens and they allow you to be, to be represented through your sports federations, um, they will say it's okay. Then after four years, when you switch citizenship for whatever reasons, and another country allows it, the Olympics will, the International Olympic Committee will again say it's okay. There is a, a waiting period for say one or two years so that you cannot switch every year for every competition. That's not allowed. But after this, this waiting period, you know, you can switch as much as you want. As long as your country provides you citizenship, and as long as the National Sport Federation uh, selects you for the national team. Those three preconditions are important for um, the International Olympic Committee. Based on the International Olympic Committee rules, Naomi Osaka, who currently represents Japan in tennis, may choose to represent Haiti in the next Summer Olympics showcase as long as she is called by the Haitian Sports Federation and complies with both Haitian and Japanese citizenship laws. But Alfonso can only play for Team Canada because Olympic football is governed by FIFA rules. And according to FIFA, once you play one football game at a senior level sanctioned by FIFA, you're stuck with that country for life. It gets more confusing. 
England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland all sent separate teams to the World Cup. But at the Olympics, they all played together. The British Olympic Association also recruits players from the British overseas territories, including the Falkland Islands, the Isles of Man, and the Channel Islands. Whew. So previously, before the modern ways of thinking about citizenship and identity, you were um, close to a king and you served a king. So whenever you wish to go outside, say from France to Spain, you had a kind of paper in which you said that you served the king of France and then you were able to, to, to move on. That was not literally a passport kind of identity um, paper, but it was a person. Now, nowadays, it's entirely different. So the, the whole idea of um, citizenship and acquiring citizenship is based usually on three different issues. One is um, the soil. Where are you born? Are you born on the ground? So where you are in Canada and North America in general, but in the Americas in general. So if you are born in Canada, or if you are born in, in the US, you are eligible to US or Canadian uh, citizenship. Um, in many other countries, that's the same. But for example, not so long ago in Germany, um, they asked you whether your father was born in the Germany or your, your, your grandfather or your mother or your grandmother. So that was, you, it, it was based on descent rather than soil. So you have those two um, um, issues. And then the third issue um, is also important and that's quite recent, which is based on migration. So since the say late, late 1980s, early 1990s, we face a lot of labor migration in, uh, in, in Europe. So we had uh, people, especially from Turkey and Morocco, and now second and third generation people from Turkey and Morocco. So they were not born here. So then after say five years in some countries or nine years or 10 years in other countries, they are also eligible to um, get in my case, Dutch citizenship, in the German case, German citizenship, or in the French case, French citizenship. And most countries have different priorities. And, uh, but usually when those three come together, either you are born somewhere or your parents are born there and or you contribute to the local society, then um, everyone accepts you as a citizen. Okay, let's play a super quick game. The country you pick is knocked out of a major tournament. Who do you cheer for next? I have three basic rules. It's really no rocket science. It's kind of a personal principle thing, but here it goes. Number one, what government does the most good in the world? Number two, what country did the least colonizing? And number three, what team has the most Africans? It's kind of just my role. So uh, let's set this. Russia versus Saudi Arabia. Okay, uh, I'm kind of not watching that game at all. We give thanks. He's pushing. Argentina versus Iceland. Well, there's Lionel Messi, uh, Di Maria, some really, really great teams. Argentina is also great in terms of international uh, international conservation of land. So I really like the Argentina vibe. So I'm kind of cheering for Argentina in that game. England versus Colombia. Okay, it gets tricky. You know, they, 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 they matched up in the, in the round of 16 at the last Olympic World Cup. Colombia... Uh, they have like four four incredible black African players on the World Cup. But England 
uh, you know, England have Rashford, they have Saka, they have Sancho. They have some really, really great, uh, really great players there. But kind of England colonized uh, Nigeria, so that's awkward. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going, uh, kind of going for England on this one. Each world region sends about five teams to the World Cup. But depending on who you ask, there were more like eight African teams who made it to the 2018 World Cup in Russia. With mercurial players like Paul Pogba, whose parents were raised in Guinea, and whose older brother, Florentine, actually plays for the Guinean national team. To N'Golo Kante, born in Paris, to migrant parents from Mali, to the maverick Kylian Mbappe, who has an Algerian mother and a Cameroonian father, the hope of Africa winning the World Cup was in France. And man, those boys put on a serious show. Celebrations started on the streets of Paris, but soon enough, young children in Bamako, in Conakry, in Yaoundé were raptured in elation, all of them proud that their big brothers brought home the grandest prize of the most beautiful game in the whole world. Le Bleus were draped in the white, red, and blue jersey of France, but these players were also wearing another jersey, a jersey that they would never take off. Trevor Noah quips on his show, Africa, Africa won, won the World, World Cup. Cup. Africa won the World Cup. Africa won the World Cup. Africa won the World Cup. 80% of the French squad were of African descent. The French ambassador to America responded with a strongly worded email. I heard your words about an African victory. Nothing could be less true. By calling them an African team, it seems you are denying their Frenchness. But underneath this exchange was a kind of forgetting. Because just in 2011, Marine Le Pen, leader of a far-right wing party in France, spoke out about French national team selection after their first round exit in the World Cup as a consequence of their diversity. Of course, when she says diversity, she really means immigrants. And when she says immigrants, she really means African and Arab migrants, to be exact. It wasn't just in their politics. It was all over French media, but also in the French Football Federation. The Guardian reports that the coach of the French national team and senior officials of the French Football Federation openly discussed a quota for non-white players in the French National Trading Academy. The idea is if you can limit the amount of dual nationality players at the youth training academies, you ensure that the share of white French players would remain represented in the French selection. But if the French team was African, then surely the Moroccan team was European. Eight out of the 23 players Morocco sent to the World Cup were born and raised in France. Five were born in the Netherlands, two were born in Spain, and the final two players were born in Belgium and Canada. Only six players were born in Morocco, and of which three were eligible to play for another country. When an athlete puts on a jersey, who is it that they represent? When the World Cup is there, or the European Cup is there, and the Netherlands is there as well, you know, that's the first team I'm, I support. In my heart, there is something has happened. So the state and the media 
um, and my surroundings, you know, because they are tell, you know, I know about every detail about the players when they were six, when their mothers were six, even when their wives gave birth to whatever son, you know, all those details are there. I don't know those facts of the Moroccan team or the uh, uh, Japanese team or whatever. So it, it, it comes close to me. It comes close to me also in terms of language. They speak my language. They speak Dutch, you know, that's, that makes it easier for me to identify with this team. Um, I'm a soccer fan, so I go to the stadium. I've seen my, many of those. I, I did not see the players of Australia or of the US or Canada or whatever. So it's still um, because or despite of all my academic career that I, for those reasons, identify first with the Dutch team. And I think for many people, it works the same. Citizenship is not just about soil, blood or migration. It's also about story, who we identify with, who we claim as ours and who claims us. It's not about logic. It's about emotion, a deep, primordial emotion. It's also really random, kind of birthright lottery. Where you are born will determine so much of who you are, what opportunities you can access, and who you can be in this world. Many African at least do not, you know, just for citizenship or whatever, but also if you want to perform on the best, highest, top level, you need the best um, training facilities, you need the best coaches, you need the whatever. And most of the time they are not, especially in sub-Saharan, they are not there. So making a move helps you to, you know, to, to, to get the best out of you. Let's face it and let's accept it that that's what's happening now already. And um, our citizenship rules are now more or less reinforcing the inequality that's already there. So being more flexible, f- flexible in citizenship rules, you know, I think would also um, make a more fair sporting um, society. The Europeanness of the Moroccan national football team, the Atlas Lions, was a result of a campaign by the Moroccan Football Federation to recruit the best players for their national team, no matter where they lived in the world. The case to bring in 19-year-old Dutch Moroccan superstar Mohamed Ihiteren was most peculiar. Born to Moroccan parents living in the Netherlands, he was eligible to play for both the Moroccan Atlas Lion and the Dutch Oranges. Ihiteren is every coach's dream. He reads the game like it's a New York Times bestseller. Slick with the ball on his feet, silk when he moves, he can spot a pass a mile away and has a lightning change of acceleration. He represented the Netherlands at the under-14 level, won the European Championship with them and the under-17 team, but was yet to make a senior team appearance for the Netherlands, so he was approached by the Moroccan Football Federation to represent Morocco at the under-21 level. He had to then publicly stated he will take the time to consider Responses were swift. By some, he was called a traitor. He was accused of betraying his family's adoptive country after they had invested so much in his development. He was mobbed at airports, was a victim to hate and ostracization. And he was only 17 at the time. Still, he insisted he will take his time to consider his future 
as an international football player. The Dutch team campaigned on the platform of continued professional development and personal growth and the assurance of competition at the highest level. Mohammed's father was part of the first generation of guest workers who arrived in Utrecht on September 1st, 1969. The day after he arrived, he found work at a large soft drink manufacturer in Munich. He worked there for 43 years until his retirement. Mohammed's father was part of some 100,000 Turks and Moroccan nationals who migrated to the Netherlands between 1965 and 73. There would be a steady increase of Turk and Moroccan labor migrants to the Netherlands until about 86, and it was in 1985 that Mohammed's mother arrived in Netherlands. Together, her and her husband would raise five children. In an interview to AD, a Dutch media outlet, Mohammed's older brother Yassir says about his father, quote, he was very proud to live in the Netherlands and raise them to never play a victim role, end quote. Yassil's father used to say, quote, you come into this world with nothing and you leave with nothing. In the meantime, you can make something of it yourself, end quote. Ethan's father would die of cancer. The Moroccan national team sent a delegation to their father's funeral. There they would continue their campaign to this grieving family. Shortly after, Ihitirin would declare every goal at Orange and PSV, his club, is now for my father. He chose the Dutch national team. Only the individual can truly know why they pick a team. For someone like Naomi Osaka, it could have been a question of what country were you born in or what culture do you have the most affinity to? For Becky Hammond, an American born in South Dakota and former WNBA star, naturalizing to Russia and representing the Russia's women basketball team in the Olympics, was a way to compete constantly at the highest possible level. For Eusebio, it was a hostage situation. Eusebio is to Cristiano Ronaldo what Maradona is to Lionel Messi. Born in the Portuguese colony of Mozambique in 1942, at the age of 19, Eusebio would sign to FC Benfica, Portugal's biggest club, and soon enough, he was naturalized into a Portuguese citizen. They called him the Black Panther. Bring your best defense, Sergio Ramos, Paolo Maldini, Harry Maguire. He will shake their post every time. He scored 733 goals in 745 games. He won the Ballon d'Or in 1965. And there's a statue of this guy in the Benfica Stadium in Lisbon, Portugal. It is immaculate. Check it out. Alongside four other players from Mozambique, they represented Portugal in the 1966 World Cup. Eusebio would leave the World Cup as its highest goal scorer and help Portugal finish third in the same competition. He was so good, the Portuguese dictator at the time, Antonio Salazar, would declare him a national treasure and block him for ever playing for any club outside Portugal. Most dictators nationalized gold mines or oil wells or aeroplane lines. Salazar nationalized Eusebio. Eusebio himself would later declare that 
he was the de facto slave of Salazar and was completely dependent on him for his passport and travels. Citizenship could feel like a hostage situation. Like you're only welcome to perform for the pleasure of your host and a failure to entertain would be severely punished. Championship. It's time for the football. This month has flown by. Two very watchable teams, arguably the two best teams, two squads with ability and affability. They've regained the love of their fans. So I'm Soraya Shiraz. I was born in England. I'm 23 years old. My mum is Egyptian. My dad is Jamaican. I was raised in North London my entire life and played football from a young age, so I'm an avid football fan. You watched the game in Trafalgar Square. Yes, I was crazy enough to go with Can thousands you? of other English people. We go to penalties at Wembley. Oh. As a football fan, you just hate penalties in general anyways. I saw it coming and I said, if we made it to penalties, we'll lose. I called mm. it. And I felt this way because our team was so young and inexperienced. But you know what was funnily enough? Before the match, me and all the black people, so I have obviously a lot of black friends and family, we all said online and in person that if a black person misses an open goal in the match or in a penalty, there will be racism. We called it. We said it from the jump. And knowing most of our attacking players were black, we knew it was going to be a black person at some point. So as soon as it said penalties, you know, Rashford and Sancho got subbed on, two black players. Sterling was there, Saka was there. I was thinking in my head, I'm pretty confident, you know, in some of them. Rashford's a Man United penalty taker, etc. But the black people I was with, so again, strangers who I didn't know prior to this day, were like, look, if a black person misses, we need to get out of here. And that was actually the first thought when it went to penalties instead of, oh, my God, I hope we win. Kane comes up, and I'm thinking, why is one of our best penalty takers first? But anyways, he scores it. Fab. Maguire comes in with, to me, the best penalty of the tour tournament, um, smashes it in. I'm thinking, fab. Rashford comes in. Eyeball to eyeball. Rashford is ready. A stutter. Oh, he's missed it. Rashford, regardless of whatever, should have scored the penalty. Very bad penalty, but I'm thinking, it's all right. Pickford will save something with Wishton. Sancho comes up, one of the most talented 21-year-olds, and I'm thinking, right, another black player, do us proud. It gets saved. I'm thinking, that's two black players that have had their penalty saved. Jorginho gets his penalty saved. It comes down to Saka, a 19-year-old boy who's never taken a professional penalty in his career. It's his penalty that decides if the game continues on or not. So he comes up and I'm stressed. I'm stressed. I'm thinking I would miss this. I like Ronaldo or Messi would miss this. How is he going to score this? Pressure on a 19-year-old. And now Italy win. They're European champions for only the second time. 53 years after the first. Obviously, it gets saved. 
And immediately, it was like a movie, a group of black boys grabbed my arm and dragged me out of Trafalgar Square. We was running down the road. And I wish it wasn't um, as bad as it sounds, but it was. And as we were running down the road, obviously I was confused and they were like, no, we need to get out of here. We don't want to wait until someone gets attacked. You know, we just need to get safe to the train station. So we start walking and at that moment, I'm feeling really disappointed and I'm tweeting. I'm going, you know, my first concern is people are going to come for these three black players, not because they missed, but because of their skin. Be upset that they missed, be angry at the manager, but because they're black, this is going to aggravate racial tensions that we already have. Because, you know, throughout the whole process, the whole England squad was taking the knee in light of Black Lives Matter. You know, they've been very pro-black very pro-black including the white players in we do not stand for discrimination so i knew that this was going to cause tension because our own home fans were booing the england fans for taking the knee immediately i think about 10 minutes after the match i saw a video of a black man getting attacked at a train station straight away and then as i lifted my head up from my phone i see um, a white man Shout at one of the boys I'm standing next to, your people are the reason why we're lost. These stories, your people. stories of Angloma, the stories of Osaka remind us you see, the white that the rules that scored. govern our lives are arbitrary, impermanent, and ever-changing. Laws that appear universal are merely cultural. They often reinforce the status quo and reinforce inequality that already exists. They often make us feel like hostages in our own lives. A change of eligibility laws will mean so much more freedom and allow players to give back and represent not just their countries, but also their kin. What will this world look like if we could play for more than just one team? Special thanks to Saraya and Dr. Unk. Thanks to Habon Ali, Abena Pepra, Salma Elzamel, Dr. Peter Niersch. Arena is produced by Trad Magazine, Alkelbion Pictures, and sponsored by Amplify Africa and the Ontario Trillium Foundation.